So if we can uh, go to the uh, document camera, I'll, I'll start out uh, this seventh class in globalization since 1492. Again, it's March 1st, 2006. I'm watching for the document camera to come up here. Uh, Northrop Fry. Yeah, I can see it. Uh, that's a, an English prof at University of Toronto and one of the most uh, famous literary critics uh, that Canada has produced in its history. Here's Northrop Fry with uh, Peggy Atwood, with Margaret Atwood, of course, a very famous uh, Canadian writer. Uh, Northrop Fry, uh, among his many works, uh, near the end of his life, he wrote uh, a literary criticism of the Bible, of the Great Code he called it, and, and uh, his approach was that whether or not you adhere to Christianity, whether or not you uh, embrace the Bible as, as the word of God, the fact remains that these are stories, this is mythology, these are legends that are archetypes in the society that uh, define how we look at things in many ways. So I'm, I'm uh, quoting from a the second of a three-volume work, The Literary History of Canada, uh, which uh, was published uh, in 1965. It's quite an old publication now. And uh, see, it's been frequently republished. So Northrop Fry writes the concluding essay to this uh, series of essays about different aspects of Canadian literature in different periods of history. And I'm uh, going to take the title tonight from a phrase in, uh, in this essay. It seems to me, writes Northrop Fry, that Canadian sensibility has been profoundly disturbed, not so much by our famous problem of identity, important as that is, as, that is, as by a series of paradoxes in what confronts that identity. It is less perplexed by the question, who am I, than by some such riddle as, where is here? Uh, so that's going to be my takeoff point tonight, uh, where is here? And uh, we'll use uh, Uncle Sam here as a, as a motif uh, that we'll write around. Where is here? Uh, orienting ourselves to globalization part two because we did uh, where is the West and tonight where is here? And uh, I'm going to talk a bit about the concept of the West. I'm going to talk a bit about the concept of Alberta. Surely Alberta is a jurisdiction that has closely associated itself and is closely associated in the minds of many with the concept of the West. Uh, I'm going to... Uh, speculate and, 
and reflect on a place called Canada. I'm going to speculate and reflect on a place called America. I think America is a highly controversial term. Is it a country? Is it a hemisphere? Is it a state of mind? Is it a dream, the American dream? I feel strongly uh, about the fact that uh, Canada is an American country, just like Bolivia and Ecuador. America is not a country. It's a, it's a, a hemisphere. Uh, place. I'm going to talk a bit about a place called the Western Hemisphere. I'm going to talk about a place called uh, the United States of America. I'm going to speculate on uh, what is uh, Latin America. And Latin America surely is a pretty powerful concept which acknowledges the role of the Roman Catholic Church in the history of much of the Western Hemisphere. What is the concept of a Latin America? Uh, obviously, Latin is the language of the Roman Church. Uh, so that's uh, going to be the uh, framework that I'm going to suggest tonight. Um, I want to talk about uh, an individual, I'm working into the discussion, Toussaint Louverture. Pierre Dominique Toussaint Louverture. And uh, he, to me, represents uh, an aspect of America that uh, we need to think more about and be more cognizant of. This is an interesting portrait of him. He uh, was engaged by and inspired by the philosophy of the, of the French Revolution. And he was a slave in one of the richest colonies in the world, San Domingo. And he led, uh, he emerged as the obvious and eloquent and gifted leader of that slave revolt. He ended up dying in jail in France because Napoleon Bonaparte, who supposedly was trying to export the philosophy of the French Revolution through militarism, in fact, tried to turn the clock back and tried to defend slavery. And uh, so he was captured and ended up dying in winter in a prison in, uh, in, uh, in France. But uh, his efforts led to the creation of, of the second republic in the Western Hemisphere uh, called Haiti. And uh, Haiti is, uh, you know, is, is much in the news. Uh, here's a uh, poem by Robin Matthews uh, called Think Freedom, a uh, poem about Toussaint Louverture. Robin Matthews is a, is a very uh, committed um, Canadian nationalist and is a great critic of, uh, of the United States. Uh, out, of its tangle, out of its own tangled sweetness, Haiti raises mournful petals 
and elaborate gardens for strangers to enjoy. The slaves of Haiti rose up when the cry of freedom lifted out of France and spread across the Atlantic. Toussaint Louverture and the former slaves gained liberty until despotism's answer to the best of the French Revolution, Bonaparte, captured Pierre, Dominique, Toussaint, and took him to France to die in Fort de Joux. Oh, freedom, oh, liberty, out of its tangled sweetness, Haiti shifted back and forth from freedom to despotism until despotism's answer to all democratic dreams in the world, the United States of America marched into Haiti and forced Haitians to let it buy land, forced Haitians slaves again and has kept them under slavery ever since. Oh freedom, oh liberty. In unbroken succession, oppressors take power in the USA. In each one, greed burns and spreads like forest fire through corporations. The population grown fat on the blood of slaves, fasuned with lies, fetid with propaganda that praises the U.S. love of self-determination and the freedom of all people on earth. Oh, freedom, oh, liberty, come again, Pierre, Dominique, Toussaint, black slave of 1791. Come back, come back to show all those who are enslaved, all the world's indigenous people, that the, press, uh, the, the oppressor can be defeated, that the burden of domination thrown off. Come back singing to all the world's oppressed, oh, freedom, oh, liberty. So I uh, want to work uh, the discussion on Toussaint Louverture in, but I'll begin with uh, a reference to a work that's uh, given me a lot of uh, food for thought. It's an old book, but I saw it... Uh, I saw a lot of references to it, and uh, lo and behold, I found it in a second-hand bookstore in uh, Lethbridge here. Uh, Rise of the West, A History of the Human C Community by William H. Uh, McNeil, a book published uh, first in uh, 1965, or 1963, actually. And I've, I've uh, looked at this quote before, but let me uh, return to it. Quite possibly, Western civilization incorporated into its structure a wider variety, I'm reading on page 539, a wider variety of incompatible elements, incompatible elements, than did any other civilization of the world. And the prolonged and restless growth of the West, repeatedly rejecting its own potentially classical foundations, may have been, uh, may have been related to the contrarieties, contrarieties built so deeply into its structure. Coming late to the scene and inheriting such incompatibles, the high civilization of the far West has not yet come to rest, but has revolutionized itself three times. No other civilized society has ever approached such restless instability, nor exerted such drastic influence upon its fellows all around the world. 
in this far more than in any particular intellectual institution or a technological expression that Western Europe has from time to time put on lies the true uniqueness of Western civilization. Uh, on the prior page, uh, McNeil refers to something called the European Wild West. So it's interesting to conceive of France and Germany and Spain and Britain as the, as the Wild West. But of course, these were the, the areas that were seen as the, the realm of tr wild tribes, savage peoples in the time of the Roman Empire. So what was it that happened in Western Europe that gave it such, uh, uh, such dynamism, that gave it such energy, that gave it such aggression? This concept that there's something so contradictory within the West that there are these um, incompatibilities, whether it be, say, Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, or secularism and religious mission. Uh, I think we're seeing this very much now uh, at play in uh, the post-9-11 world with the United States, in a sense, uh, engaged in war that has to be a kind of rational identification of specific issues, uh, a rational dealing with the reality that technology has made uh, weaponry much more inexpensive, much more efficient, uh, much smaller. The fact uh, that uh, individuals can uh, get access to huge, powerful weaponry, uh, this is a reality. This has to be dealt with. Uh, it uh, takes the realm of warfare, in a way, out of the nation states and puts it in a new and unfamiliar surrounding. At the same time, there is this uh, religious element to it, that uh, the greatest resistance to the American empire seems to be coming from the Muslim world. And it's, the United States is clearly grappling with the problem of uh, who, to, uh, who to target, how do you understand uh, the part of the Muslim world uh, that represents a threat. How do you deal with the rest of the Muslim world? Uh, I think uh, Mohammed al-Masri is speaking powerfully to that. Um, this is a, an image that uh, I find very striking. Uh, this is in Guantanamo Bay. <clears throat> So uh, the concept of the West, is, is, this what, uh, is this what the West stands for? The West had taken great pride elements of the West in the concept of the rule of law. Uh, many of you have seen the, the fragility of that and the way the rule of law is being uh, preempted at Guantanamo Bay, at Abu Ghraib. Um, uh, here, here's a, a good statement of... Uh, America uh, and the Cold War, uh, the roots of, of terror, Mohammed Mamdami, I've, I've referred to this, uh, this book uh, a few times. So the United States clearly represents uh, an unfolding of the West, uh, represents that, that uh, tension between incompatibilities, between contradictions. The United States is founded, in a sense, in the Enlightenment, in the rationality of the century of Enlightenment, in the concept of the equality of human beings, in the concept of using rational 
one's mind uh, to go beyond superstition, go beyond the sense that the world is uh, somehow controlled by God and everything is, is uh, simply divine uh, intervention. At the same time, the, the United States is very much a reformation, a product of the reformation, of the Protestant reformation. Its founders, the, the, the charter group, represent uh, religious zealots, Protestant zealots, the founders of, of, of New England. So this, uh, this tension is very much, uh, very much at play. I'm going to be uh, looking a lot at maps tonight. I'm, I really want to use the document camera, uh, the, the sensational um, device, simple device. But uh, here's a picture, uh, uh, the Confederation Life Insurance Company. They uh, paid for, they sponsored a group of paintings to depict uh, the history of Canada, uh, North America. And uh, I think these images, you can all see, you can see in many of these images a great sense of uh, globalization, uh, uh, different elements uh, of world civilization meeting in Canada. Here's an image of Champlain in, in Huronia. Champlain and Brue with uh, Huron Indians on Lake Simcoe near Aurelia, planning attack on, on uh, Iroquois. So um, this, uh, this emphasis on uh, the fur trade is something that I want to uh, very much focus on tonight. And, uh, Samuel de Champlain, of course, established the heart of New France among uh, the most powerful Indian group in northeastern North America at the time, the Huron Indians. They became the center of uh, Jesuit missions. Uh, so there was very much an effort to mix commerce and religion, Roman Catholic commerce and religion. And uh, the fur trade in Canada uh, is the subject of one of the most famous texts in the in the uh, in the uh, history of English Canadian thought. Uh, Harold Innes wrote the fur trade in Canada, and uh, Harold Innes was a big influence on uh, on Marshall McLuhan, and many of you wrote about the Global Village. I didn't get a sense that too many of you um, um, Googled. Marshall McLuhan and, and had a, a deeper sense of who he was beyond he's the guy who thought up the term global village or the medium is the, the message. Uh, Harold Innes um, wrote this book in 1930 and in a way uh, the fur trade became the classic uh, study that led to much of McLuhan's theory that the medium is the message. In a sense the, the fur are the medium for the development of Canada. The fur is the currency for the development of Canada, the, the medium of exchange. And that exchange, of course, is a, a much more than a commercial exchange. It's an exchange of culture. It's an exchange of family lines, blood lines. Um, so uh, in, in commenting on the fur trade, for instance, Theodore Roosevelt 
Theodore Roosevelt, who became president of the United States in the early 20th century. Theodore Roosevelt, who had a second career as leader of the progressives. He was uh, uh, leading a movement to bust the trust and big monopolies, the railway, banking, uh, and oil monopolies that were coming to control the United States. He was a, a very rich, elite individual himself, but he took up some of the working class issues. But he um, writes this book, The Winning of the West. And uh, in introducing this work, he writes of, uh, he's very much about, he's very much conceiving of the winning of the Western Hemisphere or the winning of the territory controlled by the United States as a realization of the racial superiority of the Germanic peoples. And he sees the English-speaking peoples as Germanic peoples. And I suppose that's not too surprising with a name like Roosevelt that he's seeing you know, the, the shared ancestry and history of the German and English-speaking peoples. For instance, on page 29, uh, Theodore Roosevelt writes, the Germanic uh, strain is dominant in the blood of the average Englishman, exactly as the English strain is dominant in the blood of the average American. Twice a portion of the race has shifted its home, in each case undergoing a marked change due both to outside influence and, in and to internal development. But in the main retaining, especially in the last instance, the general race characteristic. Now, I... I frankly would be surprised if Adolf Hitler didn't read this, but I haven't been able to uh, find any explicit evidence. But if you read uh, Mein Kampf and you read this, there is just so much uh, uh, concurrence. Uh, uh, now that's, uh, that's a theory that I'd love to be able to, to develop, but uh, I can't prove that, but uh, uh, he uh, Roosevelt writes on page 33, the extension of the English westward through Canada since the War of the Revolution has been in its essential features merely a less important repetition of what has gone on in the northern United States. The gold miner, the transcontinental railway, the soldier have been the pioneers of civilization. The chief point of difference, which was but small, arose from the fact that the whole of western Canada was for a long time under the control of the most powerful of all the fur companies, in whose employ were very much many French voyageurs and courier de bois. From these there sprang up in the valleys of the Red River and the Saskatchewan a singular race of half-breeds with a unique semi-civilization of their own. It was with these half-breeds and not as in the United States with the Indians that the settlers of uh, northwestern Canada had their main difficulties. So he's obviously referring here to the Hudson's Bay Company. And as we'll see, the, uh, these, what he recalls half-breed, what we might call Métis, and in much of so-called Latin America, the word mestizo. This is a, a type of society that seems to thrive in Roman part Western Hemisphere. Most of the Western Hemisphere is Roman Catholic in, in its orientation. Uh, the part that is Protestant and English-speaking tends to be the least mestizo, the least Métis, the most European, 
the most white, the most racist. Um, so the Hudson's Bay Company is a big subject of, uh, of uh, Innes's work. And the Hudson's Bay Company, of course, Of course, the, the great bonanza of the fur trade uh, is uh, Africa. Uh, that's where people got really rich in the West Company. Um, and Athabasca is largely covered by Alberta. Uh, if I can go to the document camera, um, I think here's, a, here's a, uh, an image of modern day uh, Alberta. Fairly uh, recent, uh, September 29, 2004, in the National Post. And what does oil hit now? Is it uh, from time to time hit $65 a barrel? As as uh, I'm making this point about where is here. So you know where is here? Well, I'm raising. Well, there's a place called the United States. Where does it come from? There's a place called Alberta. Where does it come from? There's a place called Canada. Where does it come from? There's a place called the Western Hemisphere. Well, why is it called the Western Hemisphere? West of what? Isn't it strange, if you think about it, that the people who carry the legacy that becomes the center of Western civilization actually come from the East? They come from the East. And they get here and they, and they make this place into the West. And they can only make it into the West by negating reality that there were people here first that there is an Aboriginal civilization, the, the Aztecs, the Mayas, the older civilization. So isn't it interesting that a, a civilization from the East remakes the territory that it moves into as the West? Uh, so every time I see this concept of the West used in respect to the so-called Western Hemisphere, it, it raises the reality, well, what about the indigenous civilization, which has obviously been largely negated, which has obviously been largely um, uh, obliterated, uh, but less so in the Roman Catholic part of the Western Hemisphere, because it seems that the Roman Catholic Church was able to incorporate aboriginal aspects of, of, uh, of society. So. Uh, so uh, I've also, um, I'll identify uh, my own work here, and I'll have a chance to refer to the maps in here a bit, uh, the American Empire in the Fourth World. At the end of uh, the work, it really occurred to me that I needed to do some uh, maps. So I call this uh, main east-west axis of Can Canadian fur trade. When Harold Innes wrote The Fur Trade in Canada, the thinking was in some circles that Canada was a aberration, that Canada didn't make sense from, from a geographic point of view, that the major trade routes run north-south. And here we are on the Whoopup Trail on Fort Whoopup, and obviously, we're in a part of uh, the country where the, the main trade routes are north and south. This area is supplied out of the Missouri River. 
but along came Harold Innes and said, no, it's no accident that the borders of Canada are roughly concurrent with the borders of the fur trade company. So the 49th parallel, which is put on the map up until the Rockies in 1818, it might seem like an arbitrary line, but in fact, you can see that there's a general, uh, this, a general principle here that the 49th parallel approximates the line uh, separating lands drained by rivers flowing to the north from lands drained by rivers flowing into the Mississippi, in other words, into the south, the northern flowing rivers from the, from the Mississippi Valley, the land drained by rivers flowing into the north. Now, these rivers flowing into the north are going to be centers of great tension and controversy because there's no doubt that in the 21st century, the quest for fresh water in the United States is going to become the defining issue of Canada-US relations. That uh, much of the development in the United States is taking place in the Southwest and in California. And they're sucking water out of underground aquifers, but they're running out of water. And so uh, when you read the between the lines, or when you really try to wonder what's going on behind the scenes, You've got, to, you've got to think about that issue. Uh, so along comes Innes and says, no, uh, Canada actually is an is a, uh, expression of history and geography and political economy. And of course, Innes is a famous political economist. And, and this uh, Northwest Company's trade route into, uh, into the West along uh, the Ottawa River, a portage, along the Great Lakes, Lake of the Woods, uh, the Red River area, Lake Winnipeg, and up the north Saskatchewan, and then uh, into the Athabasca. And then, of course, uh, for a long period of time, Oregon, which encompasses what's now British Columbia, Washington State, that was disputed territory. It wasn't until 19... 1846 that the decision was made to extend the 49th parallel. So um, that's, that's a map that I want to um, introduce here. Uh, here's uh, another map of, it's a big map, I'm not sure if we can handle it with this. This is the Hudson's Bay Company lands. So the Hudson's Bay Company lands uh, this is the purple line here identifies the territory flowing into Hudson's Bay. And of course, after 1821, the Hudson's Bay Company absorbs the Northwest Company. So after 1821, Montreal changes its personality a lot. Montreal ceases to have such an emphasis on the fur trade. And it's very interesting now, the fight for Montreal. You know, Montreal was the capital city of Canada commercially, like New York is the capital city commercially of the United States. And it built, it grew up in, in, in uh, the colonization and the commercial exploitation of Western Canada. And now there's a move to make Montreal the commercial capital of a place called Quebec and to uh, very much 
diminish its, its terrain, but make it uh, the commercial capital of a sovereign, independent country. And the new frontier for Montreal would be James Bay, would be this, this part of the world, uh, and the hydroelectricity in here. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, big policies of Robert Bourassa, he was going to dam James Bay, transform James Bay into a uh, freshwater reservoir, pump the, the water up over across the watershed into the Great Lakes and, and, uh, and um, get the water down into the southwestern United States in that way. It was Atomic Energy of Canada, Bechtel, many of the big engineering firms that built the James Bay Hydroelectric Development Project that were in favor of this. Of course, the James Bay Hydroelectric Project represented for the French Canadians or the Quebecois uh, a, a opportunity to do high tech, to do something highly technical, uh, a technocratic project in the French language in North America. So it was a very much connected to the quiet revolution, the effort to uh, enable French Canadians to use French in their language of work and not simply at home. And it was, you know, very much, uh, there's much, much symbolism attached to it. So uh, the Hudson's Bay Company is uh, uh, really um, uh, a, a very important uh, aspect of Canada's history. It's created in 1670. It goes till 1870. And that is the basis for England and then Great Britain to maintain some sort of land claim in North America. If you look at the empires of the world, in th th this is a map of the empires of the world as an approximation as they were in 1700. And so uh, here the, the, they're color-coded. So you can see in 1700, it was just a matter of colonizing the coasts. Uh, and this is, of course, the Dutch, the Portuguese, <coughs> the Spanish or the green. Now, this may be a picture of Canada that is surprising, but uh, this is the French Empire in North America. And uh, so Canada doesn't approximate what we now call Canada. Much of Canada is south of the Great Lakes. And, of course, the... Uh, the strategic concept was to uh, develop a French colony in Louisiana at the mouth of the Mississippi and connect Louisiana with Canada, which is the St. Lawrence watershed, the Great Lakes St. Lawrence watershed. And this was LaSalle's idea. And if, if this could have been successfully implemented, then you would have the Anglo-American colonists blocked in. And the key to this was good relations with the Indians. So the French Empire, they didn't have a big influx of colonists. They had uh, maybe only 10,000 came to Quebec from France. And there was big uh, Vange de Berceau, you know, the Revenge of the Cradle, big population growth, which the Roman Catholic Church promoted. Um, but their 
imperial aspirations really depended upon making good relations with the Indians. And of course, the, the Jesuits were masters of this. They, uh, they studied the Aboriginal languages. Uh, they were very expert in, 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 in maintaining the Aboriginal customs, but just changing a little bit to, in, to bring in Jesus Christ and references to God. Um, but that, so, so the, the French were trying to uh, box in the Anglo-American colonists. But then look at, if you look at this concept, then the Hudson's Bay Company, the, uh, the English have the French boxed in too. They have them in a sense covered in the, in the northwest extreme. And where we are now is, isn't claimed by anybody in 1700. Uh, where we are now in Alberta uh, is, uh, I would say, one of the last parts of the world to be very uh, clearly mapped. Um, it's, uh, if I can show how it's depicted in earlier maps. So here's a depiction of... Uh, Upper Canada and Lower Canada, Hudson's Bay Company, and then something called Indian Country, a little bit of Russian colonization along here, Spanish territory. Uh, if we go back to, here's another depiction, uh, 1774, uh, colony of Quebec. Now look at how Quebec Uh, comes down into what is now a great part of the United States. Uh, and uh, that, of course, the addition of that part of uh, the interior of North America to Quebec, this was one of, the, uh, one of the provocations that led to the American Revolution. So I'm, I'm trying to uh, get us familiar with or uh, I'm trying to orient us to, you know, where is here? So when we talk about Alberta,